Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. When we think about plastic surgery, particularly cosmetic procedures, we may tend to picture either young or middle-aged women and men being interested in it. Often it seems to be assumed that people who are of an advanced age would no longer be so interested in their appearance. In fact, each one of us, ourselves, at whatever age we are, is more interested in how we look in the mirror now and probably can't imagine that when we are 20 years older, we will care as much. But newsflash, that is often not the case. So is there ever an age that is too old to undergo plastic surgery procedures? Well, that's a bit of a complex issue, as there are many factors at play. Fortunately, today we are speaking with Dr. Joanne Monaco, a plastic surgeon with a thriving practice in New York, and she is able to provide some great insight on this issue. Let's pick up that conversation now. Well, I'm pleased today that we have Dr. Joanne Monaco, who is a solo practitioner, plastic surgeon in Upper East Side of Manhattan, and she was a program director for the Aesthetic Surgery Fellowship at Manhattan Eye and Ear for many years. Welcome, Dr. Monaco. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Newham. Such a pleasure. Yes, thank you. And you and I actually know each other from back in the training days when you were training in Kansas City. It was, it was so nice to get to know you then and to have a female mentor in the world of plastic surgery where there weren't very many females. I spent six years in Kansas City and I enjoyed my time learning from you. It was very magical. Oh, that is a lovely thing to say. Thank you so much. And I was always so impressed with you which is the reason I'm interviewing you today. Well, thank um, you for having me. Absolutely. I'd love to ask you, first of all, before we start, what is your practice like? What type of cases do you do? So after I did my six years of integrated plastic surgery residency in Kansas City, I came to New York and I did an aesthetic surgery fellowship. And that pretty much set me on the path of doing primarily cosmetic surgery afterwards as a solo practitioner. Pretty much in New York, everybody is a solo practitioner. Mm-hmm. It's not like other cities where there are large groups of dermatologists mixed with plastic surgeons. We're pretty much solo in New York. My practice is, I'd say, 95% cosmetic and has been since the day I started my practice. I will do an occasional child with a laceration, but it's usually a friend of a friend, and that's how the referral tends to come. But most of my cases tend to be eyelids and breasts and tummy tucks and things like that. So I'm lucky that in my office I have um, my own operating room, which is very convenient for doing surgeries and you know being able to see patients in between surgeries. Mm-hmm. You know, the convenience factor is very important when you're trying to juggle so many different things in life. So I've been in the 
same office setting for as long as I've graduated. That's when I started my practice. So I just have a wonderful patient population, mostly Upper East Side moms, I'd say. My practice is 90% female and 10% male. Um, although post-COVID, it seems like men are becoming more interested in, in their cosmetic procedures. And the more and more we were on Zooms, everybody was becoming more self-conscious and uh, looking in the mirror more. So um, men are definitely Absolutely. trickling into my practice. Um, yeah. But I have a nice mix of patients, and I, I'm very, very, very fortunate with patients that I get to see and the staff that I get to work with in my office. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. Well, you know, today we're talking about age as it relates to timing of plastic surgery. Uh, and I'll tell you why I asked you to talk with me about this topic and what spurred the idea. I recently read an article about a woman who made the decision to undergo a cosmetic facelift, including a neck lift, as they often do, at the age of 78. And, you know, it's a poignant story. She mentioned having noticed changes to her neck, even back in her early 60s. And she was an active woman in the public. And over time, she became more and more self-conscious about her neck. She said she didn't mind all the wrinkles of the skin of her face. It was just that it had become psychologically uncomfortable to look at herself in the mirror and see how the sagginess of her neck had progressed, really. She didn't feel like herself anymore, even at that age. And of course, as you can predict, the surgery was life-changing for her. And, you know, she had a renewed energy and youthfulness that finally matched her mentally. So that's really the impetus in this discussion is to talk about if you can ever be too old for plastic surgery, particularly cosmetic surgery. But before we delve into that, the question of whether or not someone is ever too old for plastic surgery, could we first discuss what cosmetic procedures seem to be the most common by patient age groups? Because I think listeners would actually be very interested in that. Women in, in their 20s are coming in for breast procedures, whether they are looking for a breast augmentation or a breast reduction or a breast lift. The presence of social media has made things like the many lip procedures very popular with people in their 20s, whether it's the use of Botox in the face or Botox, say, to flip the lip, the upper lip and invert it one millimeter, mm -hmm. or to raise the lip using an incision underneath the nose. This is the category that most women are, are looking for in their 20s. I'm also finding that women in their 20s are coming in for body contouring procedures, mm -hmm. whether they have little areas of fat deposits that they can't seem to work out at the gym that they would like to have contoured, whether it's thigh liposuction or hip liposuction or working on their saddlebag areas. So women in their 20s can be you know, all over the place with their, with their interests. And oftentimes I see that their requests tend to shift with what's happening on social media. I mean, it really had, tends to be a very big influence in this demographic. Ah. Women in their 30s can be coming in for the exact same type of procedures, breast procedures. Here we're starting to see women maybe born with heavy eyelids and want to have them addressed with a small lift in their upper eyelids. Women are looking at their ears now. Maybe they want to have an otoplasty or having their ears pinned back that never bothered them as a child or in their teens. But now, now that we're so all over taking selfies, people are becoming oh, yeah. more self-conscious of parts of their body that they weren't necessarily 
conscious of before. Women in their 30s might be finished with having their children, and so they're thinking about procedures to sort of turn back the clock to their pre-pregnancy days, whether that's a breast lift, a breast augmentation with a lift, a tummy tuck procedure, a body contouring procedure, or what we sometimes call the mommy makeover. So women in their 30s and 40s will approach mommy makeovers very readily. And I get a lot of those consultations. And I think it's because women do feel comfortable with a female surgeon. So I know that's where a lot of my referrals come to based just on the fact that I am a female. Mm -hmm. Women in their 40s are starting to see the signs of aging, whether they have been sun worshipers or not. They are coming in for Botox and fillers. They're getting their eyelids done, their upper eyelids, their lower eyelids. Sometimes they're even needing a little neck lift procedure in their 40s. They're becoming more cognizant of the quality of their skin and taking care of their skin. So sunscreen and retinol products tend to become on the front burner for women in this demographic. Whereas as a plastic surgeon or my dermatology colleagues, we would love for people to be aware of using all these great products in their 20s so that we don't have to worry about all these laser procedures to turn back the clock. Wouldn't that be great? Um, But women in their 40s, they're starting to see the sun damage from years of sun exposure and not being religious about using a sunscreen. So they are coming in for skincare routines and complex peels and laser procedures as regular maintenance. In addition to maybe at that age, they're doing their mommy makeover and getting their tummy tuck or their breast augmentation. Women in their 50s are starting to think about their face and their neck a little bit more. And maybe injectable and minimally invasive procedures are not enough at this demographic. And so women are looking towards surgical intervention, whether that's a mini lift of their face, a mini lift of their neck, or sometimes we use minimally invasive treatments of the fat of the submental area right below the chin, whether it's with injection or with skin tightening with a laser procedure. So women in their 50s, they're very savvy. Mm -hmm. They do their research, they come in, and they know what they're looking for. Also, when women are in their 50s, they're starting to talk to their friends who have had facelifts. And women are getting facelifts a little bit younger now because we know that early intervention tends to lead to better long-term results. So I tell my patients very frequently that facelift in the 50s will have a woman looking better in her 70s than if she waited for her first facelift in her 60s. -hmm. And so women really take this to heart because things like facelifts are no longer considered these big, involved, scary procedures as they were considered maybe a decade or two decades ago, Mm, where women would stay in the hospital one night and be monitored. Even when I was a fellow, facelifts would spend 23 hours in the hospital just overnight just so that we could keep an eye on them. And now we don't do that anymore. That's completely, you know, left by the wayside. Right. So the demographic does change with each decade. And I could say that even with men, we're looking at 20s and 30s, men are coming in for Botox and fillers, minimally invasive things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is just like women. It's influenced by what is seen on social media. Like for example, it's been very common lately to put filler, hyaluronic acid filler into the mandible to give people more of a chiseled mandible. And this is women, men, yeah, chiseled jawlines. And that's, we see it all over social media every single day. And this is just the look now. I don't know if it's created by celebrities or influencers, but Mm -hmm. People know that this is affordable and attainable, and they come in asking for it. And, and it's, it's very commonly something that I do. 
Mm -hmm. So this is more in the 20s and 30s. And then again, for men, men are looking for a little bit of liposuction in their 30s and 40s. They're looking at their eyelids. They, they don't like the idea of potentially looking tired. So maybe they want some tear trough filler or fat into their face to turn back the clock. And then men, just like women, are looking for facelifts in their 50s and 60s. So it's not that much different between men and women, decade across decade. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the consumers are just so remarkably savvy now. And because they have so many different resources from the Internet, from social media, they come in very, very educated and they know exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, that's some great insight. Well, now some people and I think in particular younger ones, I think may assume that people in their 60s, 70s would no longer care about their appearance enough to undergo a procedure. Do you really find that to be the case? Uh, no, no, definitely not. I don't know if New York is vain or 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's become just a number. Excellent point. People are living longer. We have better health. We have better access to health care. Yeah. And 60s is not old anymore. And even 70s, there's so many people who come into my practice who are so active, so fit, traveling the world in, the seven, in their 70s, that if they didn't have other medical issues, I wouldn't hesitate about doing a facelift or a neck lift on somebody who is 78, as you used the example at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Even people in their 80s, they're coming in and they're just in such great shape. They're just taking care of themselves for decades and just looking great, feeling great. Those are not numbers that are, would detract a plastic surgeon in New York, one, any one of my colleagues, from performing a surgery on um, somebody at that age group. Now, keep in mind, this is all within the restrictions of having other medical issues, like things like hypertension, asthma, things that would be dangerous in any age group. It's something that we have to talk about and make sure that the patient's primary care physician or cardiologist is perfectly comfortable with having this patient put to sleep. So it is a team effort to make this decision for any patient. Mm -hmm. My anesthesiologist weighs in on it. The, the patient's primary care doctor or cardiologist weighs in on it. And I weigh in on it. I'm the first line of defense. And if I don't feel like the patient is in good, good shape, um, hearty, or if there are just too many medical conditions, I, I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable putting anybody to sleep for an elective procedure. But using age as a cutoff or a discrimination factor is just not the way we do it anymore. Every case is individualized and there are several doctors who will look at a patient and decide. I find more hesitation with doing elective procedures in patients with higher BMIs than I do with patients based on their age, just because patients take great care of themselves and 72, 74, 76, those people can be perfectly great candidates for a neck lift or a facelift, whereas maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that was considered too dangerous, too old, and we, we don't think necessarily that way anymore. And for our listeners, could you explain what BMI is? BMI is body mass index, and it's a measure of height versus weight and whether a patient is safe based on their size to be put to sleep for anesthesia. So I, I think the number for being overweight is considered 24 or 25. When I was the program director at Manhattan Eye and Ear, I wouldn't allow the fellows to do elective tummy tucks on patients with BMIs over 30 because mm. 30 is a number where the complication rate goes very high with putting somebody to sleep, whether it's a complication from anesthesia, which is very, very rare, or just a complication from a wound healing standpoint. So when you have too much fat in, say, the tummy tuck area, the wound bed is not going to heal as well. And there's the potential 
that the wound edges will break open and there will be delayed healing with patients who have higher BMIs. Related to blood supply in particular. Blood supply in particular, right. And I also have to be careful with patients who are smokers mm. because everything that I do is elective. So if I have a patient come in and see me for a breast augmentation or a tummy tuck, one of the first questions on my inventory is if the patient is a smoker. And oftentimes, if the answer is yes, I have to find out if they are able to stop smoking for two weeks before surgery and a few weeks after surgery to allow enough time for the body to heal. I'm not a big fan of doing elective procedures on smokers. It, it affects the wound healing and mm -hmm. it affects the wound bed. And it's just not medically necessary what I do. Everything I do is just completely elective. It's not like I'm taking a gallbladder out that's medically necessary. Mm -hmm. So to optimize the patient and make sure that the patient is in the best medical condition is just the safest way to go for any procedure, whether it's big or small, whether it's on a 20-year-old or a 70-year-old. It's just what we have to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of surgeons share your philosophy on that. And I did in my practice as well. So those are great points. Well, let me ask you, this is maybe a little bit more philosophical, but do you think the expectations for outcome are a bit different as people get older? You know, this patient in the story I mentioned stressed that she was not looking for perfection. She just wanted to look in the mirror and see the woman she used to be. Do you think there are different expectations as patients get older? Well, I think I'm very fortunate that most of my patients are very realistic about what their expectations are. And part of the initial consultation is setting the expectation standard as well. I am very realistic with my patients when I'm talking about what I'm capable of achieving, whether it's reducing a breast, I never promise a certain size afterwards. In increasing a breast, I never promise a certain cup size afterwards. Mm -hmm. With a facelift, I can never promise that I'm going to turn a 60-year-old into a 50-year-old based on what I can do because, I mean, we're human. We have a scalpel and we are as capable as our skill set allows us. And there are so many factors that are involved too. And there's so many yeah. factors. And there's also a lot of variability in terms of every patient heals very differently. So, you know, I recently had to start incorporating a full discussion about nutritional status because patients are taking weight loss medications. Patients have had surgeries where certain nutrition components are not being absorbed in their diet anymore. And there can be problems with wound healing afterwards for elective is, procedures, whether it's an arm lift, a thigh lift, a tummy tuck, important. any of those kinds of procedures. So talking about nutritional status is a very common discussion now because I've been burned and patients have been not forthcoming about, say, their caloric deficits or their, their restrictive diets. And, mm -hmm. and that is just a problem for wound healing afterwards. And so these are things that I have to think about. But I do believe that Part of my job is to set the patient's expectations. Sure. And if I feel that I cannot meet that patient's expectations, I will not operate on that person. I'm on staff at Lenox Hill Hospital, and there are over 150 plastic surgeons on staff at my hospital. <laughs> that patient can go two doors to the left and two doors to the right and find 10 plastic surgeons to do that procedure, <laughs> and I'm fine with that. But I have to set the expectations. We all have to be on the same page when it comes to an elective procedure. Do you think it's harder to set those expectations with younger patients versus older patients or vice versa? Or have you noticed any difference at all? Well, younger patients oftentimes will come in and show me pictures off of Instagram of breasts that they want or lips that they want. 
-hmm. And I do have to have a discussion about, well, your breasts are not starting out looking like that. You, you don't necessarily have the cleavage that this person has. And so adding an implant is not necessarily going to give you cleavage, as, as some people think that an implant will do that. Shapes of the lips. Patients will come in wanting very heart-shaped lips because that's the style right now. And I have to set the expectation saying, listen, this is what I think we're capable of achieving with your lips. So I do think that sometimes there's a downside to bringing photographs to your surgeon saying, like, this is the breast size that I want, or this is the nose that I want. I mean, it's just a different starting point for every patient. And sure. so I have to set the expectations in that regard. Now, older patients, I don't think that I've ever had an older patient bring me a picture of their girlfriend who's had a facelift and said, I want it this tight. <laughs> gotcha. They understand that I, and there is you know, limitation with what the skin can do and how much that I could pull without making a person look pulled. That's like the worst thing that could happen in a facelift is to make somebody look pulled. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I explain that being conservative is always the best way to go and it's always better to take a little bit more the second time if a second time is even needed. Or like with a breast reduction, I always explain that I, if I make them too small, we don't want to have to have a second procedure to make them big again. So it's better to just underestimate. And if I have to do a revision, I'll do a revision. But oftentimes that's never the case, but it's about setting the expectations. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you this. With your older patient population, do you find that they are mostly people coming in for revisions of previous surgeries done years ago, or are there many de novo procedures? There's a great mix of both. I mean, in New York, there's access to so many great plastic surgeons. And so patients are getting things done and they're confronted by their, their social circles and having things done earlier. Mm -hmm. But I do have a great number of primary facelifts that walk in for consultation. And I wouldn't say that I have that many revisions, but I do have patients who come in having had a facelift, say eight or 10 years ago, and wanting their second facelift. Patients who have had, say their first eyelid surgery in their 30s and now they're in their 40s and they need to have it done again. So secondary procedures, absolutely. We're even seeing tertiary procedures, tertiary facelifts for sure. The third one, yeah. And a lot of this, the longevity of a surgical procedure has to do with not only just the type of surgery that was performed, the technique of the surgeries that was performed, but the way the patient upkeeps. Um, so, you know, I'm a very strong believer that skincare is very important in terms of turning over cells, taking care of sun damage, protecting from secondary smoke and things like that that'll continue to age the face. So some patients can make it a good 10 years or maybe even a little bit longer with their primary facelift and some patients don't, but they might be a known smoker and maybe they'll only get five or eight years out of their primary facelift. So yeah. it's very variable, but I do see a, a good number of both primary consults and secondary procedures. That's some really good information you're providing that there are many factors that go into how long a procedure will last, if you will. And some of it has to do with the patient themselves in terms of how they live, how healthy they maintain themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But that's really good for people to hear. I wonder if you have a story of your own of how meaningful a cosmetic procedure was for a, an older patient of yours. One of my favorite patients that I operated on recently was a husband and wife couple. They both wanted to have their procedure done on the same day so that they could recover together. They were in their late 60s and the husband wanted a facelift and his eyes, upper and lower blepharoplasty, and the wife had had a facelift already and she just wanted her upper and lower eyes done. 
So they were very active and they spent the majority of their retirement traveling the world, doing Lovely. crazy climbs through Peru and you know, the really adventure seeking type of people. But with that came a tremendous amount of sun damage. Mm. So before I could even operate on either of them, we spent a good six weeks just working on their skin and getting their skin in optimal condition before operating and doing a facelift. But it was a very endearing situation because I did the husband first, face, forelid blepharoplasty, and then I did the wife second. And they recovered side by side and they came in post-op visits side by side and they were very cute because they oh, took good care so of each other. Oh, that's so great. And they also would nitpick on, on the other as to when they weren't being compliant as a patient. So it actually worked in my favor because I had a little tattletale for each. If you know somebody wasn't applying their antibacterial ointment or wasn't using their wound gel or their scar cream or you know someone was out in the sun without sunscreen. So it was actually, it was kind of fun to, to do a retired couple together, same day, and they both did great. Oh my gosh. Well, now who took care of them if they were each, you know, recovering? Was there somebody else who would come and help them or no? No, I mean, like eyelids, it's, it's not, not too difficult of a surgery to, yeah. to recover from eyelids. I'm sure they had somebody with them for the first day or two days, yeah. one of their adult children. But after that, it's, it's, it's kind of easy. Once you get past the, the hump of a little bit of surgical pain, which tends to go away very quickly these days, where we become much more savvy with how we take care of surgical pain than uh, even Absolutely. two years ago. Absolutely. So once over that small hurdle, things are very easy to recover from. That's such a great story. And how did that procedure at that point in their lives, how did that affect their future life? What was it like for them afterwards? You know, I think these couples who do things like this together, I think they tend to become more active afterwards. I mean, yeah. they're just so much more excited to see their friends. They're out on the golf course. They're out playing tennis, traveling the world. They want to show off the fruits of their labor. And they know they look great. So yeah. I think very common that people become more active afterwards because they're just so excited and they, they feel good. They look good. And so it tends to increase people's social engagement. So I, I think it's a wonderful thing. And, and post-COVID, now that we're fully social and, and you know, back in a, in a relatively normal world, we have the ability to do that now. We're not hindered by that. I think that's wonderful. Gosh, I love hearing that. Well, can someone actually be too old to have something done? And we've touched on this a little bit, but have you ever had to say, no, I'm sorry, we shouldn't do this to someone? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I have to turn people away all the time. Again, it's the initial conversation about setting expectations. I am checking someone out just as much as they are checking me out. And it has to be a comfortable interaction between two people. Got it. Because it's a mutual trust between surgeon and patient. So there are times where I feel that somebody might be too frail to put on the operating room table for a facelift procedure. And I could potentially suggest something else. I could potentially suggest even a peel that maybe could turn back the clock a little bit. Nothing is as much as the gold standard for, say, something like a facelift as an actual surgical facelift. We have so many different devices now that promise to tighten and work on fine lines and things like that. But the gold standard remains a facelift, a traditional surgical facelift. And if I feel that somebody is not going to be hardy enough to put to sleep, to wake up, I don't want to take the risk. Again, everything I do is elective. There's nothing that's medically necessary about my practice. So if it were curing cancer, I, I think that I would ha have to take more risks, but it's not. It's all elective cosmetic procedures. So we both have to be discerning, both surgeon and patient, sure. when it comes to 
deciding if somebody is healthy enough, strong enough, and just capable of the post-op recovery. So it's more than just age. It's, it definitely is more than just age. Got it. Well, and of course, in the older population, when we're talking about facial rejuvenation, often they are needing the more aggressive procedures, you know, full facelift, et cetera, et cetera. But it sounds like what I'm hearing is occasionally you have to modify the plan based on what they're able to tolerate and the risk level that they're at. So you might do uh, something topical like a peel or maybe injectables or something. Absolutely. I have plenty of women in their 80s in my practice who are coming to me for injections, ah. whether it's their decision or my decision. So, you know, oftentimes injections are never enough, but if that's what their comfort level is, then that's what we decide we're going to do together. No, I use as my benchmark is that I have to be able to look myself in the mirror every day and be able to offer ethical and safe treatments for all of my patients, whether they are two years old with a cut on the eyebrow or 82 years old and wanting to look 52 years old. So everything is about being able to offer a good, solid treatment plan that is ethical, safe, responsible. I don't want to take any risks with anyone's health or wellness or well-being in my practice. Of course. Yeah, I think that's a great philosophy. I want to touch on one thing that we mentioned before. I'm curious about anesthesia and the older patient. Do you sometimes back off on the magnitude of procedures because you're concerned about how long an older patient might be under anesthesia, like a general anesthetic? Or do you ever do some of your facelift work or other procedures under a sedation or a local anesthetic to compensate for concern about risk? We have come so far with anesthesia and what we feel comfortable with. And I have just such a world-class anesthesiologist who I've worked with since the day I started my practice. And she's just remarkable. That's wonderful. Oftentimes when I'm having a discussion with my patients, I'm very fortunate that I could say, listen, this discussion with anesthesia and the level of anesthesia is between my anesthesiologist and you. And I let them make the decision together because I have just solid trust for her. But yes, sometimes we have to do procedures in a staged manner. There's always a safety concern about putting someone under general anesthesia for too many hours. So at my hospital, we use the guideline of six hours as the ultimate limit for too long of a surgery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I'm doing a, say, a body lift procedure that the patient is very large and there's a lot of tissue, I may need to stage the body lift and I'll do the front part of the body on one day and then come back months later and do the back portion of the body. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, because the risk of blood clots and, and healing and all those kinds of things, those are real concerns. Sure. So yes, I can use various different types of anesthesia, whether it's IV sedation or general anesthesia or local procedures. Yes, we have those abilities to change things and tweak things based on patients' medical needs and safety. But those decisions I tend to leave to my anesthesiologist because I'm in a situation that I'm fortunate that I have that level of trust with somebody because I've worked with her for over 12 years. If I were based in a hospital where you just don't know who is going to come into your operating room and who you're assigned based on that day, mm. I think I would have to have more of an active role in terms of saying, yes, I want this patient intubated for this facelift because I want this person's airway to be protected and I know this procedure, this person's going to swell, I know this procedure's going to take me a while, I'm going to have to have this patient face down to do a portion of the surgery on the backside, whatever the reason is. But with the situation that I'm in, I'm, I'm fortunate that I can leave a lot of those decisions to my anesthesiologist. That's a great setup. That's wonderful. Well, we've 
gotten some great information from you today, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I wonder if you have any final thoughts for our listeners about this subject or just about plastic surgery in general. I think that we we have come so far, even in, in my short career so far, we have come so far with how procedures have changed and how surgeons work so hard to stay current on what is safe, what is current, what patient demands are. I love the fact that my patients are so highly educated. They do their research before they even come to me. And I absolutely love that because they can challenge me and I can challenge back. And I'm very fortunate to be where I am practicing because the use of the internet, the use of social media, some people may think of it as a, as a mixed blessing, but I have no problem when patients come in with their interests, their question list. You know, my girlfriend had this procedure, my boyfriend uses this filler, you know, and it forces me to stay current with everything, which I absolutely love. And that's why my job never gets boring. I am always learning and learning both from my patients and learning from my colleagues as well as what's in the literature. So I encourage anybody who is considering a procedure, whether they are 25 or 85, to do their research. And if they don't have the ability to do their research themselves, to count on their friends, to help them do their research. We just have so many unlimited resources out there, and many of them are reliable. I'm not suggesting that Dr. Google is the way to go, but at least to have a baseline understanding, it's a smart foundation for starting the discussion about any plastic surgery procedure. Because the more a patient understands, the better the expectations are, and the safer everything will go. Because it's like patients are giving themselves their own informed consent. And that's what the surgeon's job is. It's a partnership between patient and surgeon for a healthy pathway, both before the surgery takes place and afterwards. I tell all of my patients once I've operated on them, we're married now. And so, and I take that seriously. Yeah. So they have full access to me after a surgery. They're given my cell phone number and they have unlimited visits afterwards. And, you know, they know that the, the safety and they have the comfort of always being able to contact me. And, you know, I appreciate that. And that's why I have uh, discriminating choices with who I operate with, because I don't want somebody calling me at three o'clock in the morning for, you know, a Tylenol question, you know, so. Oh, gosh. Well, that's a great philosophy. And you've been so helpful for our listeners today. Thank you for spending the time. Dr. Joanne Monaco. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Newhand. This is so fun. Really enjoyed it. Okay. Have a good day. Yes. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.